Lord, we love you and we praise you for who you are, Lord. We thank you um, for your son and the salvation we have through Christ alone, Lord. Uh, I pray as we look at the study tonight, Lord, that you will just guide us and direct us, that we will be, uh, that we'll think of you rightly, Lord, as you reveal yourself to us in your word. Uh, I pray that we will just all continually grow in our love for you, Lord, as we learn more about who you are. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, so tonight we are looking at the Trinity and Jesus Christ in the modern era. We've been talking a lot about the Trinity throughout this whole semester because We've traced the Trinity really through each era in church history. Uh, And biblical teaching doesn't change, right, as the eras um, continue, as time goes on. And so we are seeing a lot of just the same, same things, but we are looking at different people and how they've interacted with these doctrines. Uh, so, as I have been doing it for the last couple weeks, really, with the topic at hand, we're going to just really look at what first identify what is the doctrine of the Trinity again for us uh, this evening. And then we're going to kind of do a historical overview uh, for the modern era, specifically in how people thought of the Trinity. Uh, I want us to first build a nice foundation for ourselves and so we could have a right understanding, Lord willing, um, a biblical understanding of the Trinity and who Christ is before we look at what other people thought of who he is in the era of time that we're, we're in, <clears throat> which is the modern era. So we start the study with the question, what is classical or orthodox uh, Trinitarianism. And so this is asking the question, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Uh, It's called classical Trinitarianism. Sometimes it's called orthodox, just the orthodox teaching, the right teaching of uh, the Trinity. And if you have, like I've said many times before, have Listen to me talk. You know, this is something I talk a lot about. You've probably heard me talk about the Trinity a lot of times, even just in here. Um, and we've talked a lot about it when we did the seminar on the doctrine of God, right? And then many times this semester. So this first part hopefully won't be new. Uh, I pulled two quotes here from Augustine and Gregory of Nanzianzas. Uh, two quotes that I found from earlier handouts that we've already looked at uh, when we've talked about the Trinity. Um, And I pulled these two quotes specifically because I think these two quotes define well the main elements that we should think of when we think of classical uh, Trinitarianism. And then we will see how they compare to how people talked about God in then the modern era. So that's what we'll be doing. Uh, So, Where do we start when we talk about classical Trinitarianism? Well, obviously, Scripture. We want to look at Scripture. Uh, If you want a lot of texts to look at on the Trinity, you can look at past handouts. 
we've done a lot of that already. So for our purposes tonight, I simply thought we could just look at Deuteronomy 6.4, right? It's one of the main passages we go to uh, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. First, really highlighting that we only believe in one God. We don't confess that, our, that there are many gods in this world, but there is only one God. This has to be the foundation when we think of our God. He is one. But yet he is also distinct in just a single God. Uh, he is a single God, but yet he is three persons, right? So one nature, three persons is how we talk about our Trinitarian God. I tried to <clears throat> write it out in these three lines you could see right afterwards. Um, what we mean when we say Trinity. And I think what is described when we talk about what is classical Orthodox Trinitarianism. What did the early church teach um, was the doctrine of the Trinity as what was pulled out of Scripture. Uh, and this is my best attempt to try to put it concisely and fairly. You can see it says there's one God, right? That's the beginning, one God. We have to start with that. And what does that mean when we say one God? We say that it is a single God, meaning there is only one will, one identity, right? And therefore one action as well. Who subsists? That's language that's sometimes used in theological work, but simply means like exists, right? Who subsists or exists in three distinct persons. And so this is where it becomes a little difficult. How can God be one, but yet exist in three persons. And then the second line here, you can see, the Father who is not begotten, the Son who is eternally begotten, also known as, uh, sometimes people use the language, uh, eternal generation or etern eternally generated. That's the same synonymous language that you can think of with eternally begotten for the Son and the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. So I think all of us here could kind of um, understand what's being said here, and Lord willing, hopefully, be able to confess this. And so th this is what makes um, monotheism distinctly Christian, uh, the fact that we believe that God is Trinity. This is who our God is, right? This is very foundational to um, just who we believe God, God is. So, um, the three persons exist in the same essence, nature, but are distinct in the way they relate to each other. That's their only distinction, right? If there's only one God, but the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct, a good question to ask is, well, how are they distinct, they are simply distinct by the second sentence, just how they relate with each other. They're not distinct by levels of authority. They're not distinct by distinct action, right? Distinct will, as those three things listed in the beginning, but distinct identity, but they're distinct in how they relate to each other. All right, let's look through these two um, Quotes here again, 
then we'll get into the historic overview um, for the modern era. But first, before we even get to the historic um, overview, I want to talk about the change the Enlightenment brought as well, as you can see there. Um, so, uh, Augustine uh, here says, The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit um, imitate a divine unity of uh, one and of same substance in an un- indivisible e- equality. And therefore, that they are not three gods, but one God. Although the Father hath begotten the Son, and so he who is the Father is not the Son. They're distinct in the way they relate, right? Father, Son, distinction here. One's begotten, one is not. The Son is begotten by the Father, and the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son, but only the Spirit of the Father and of the Son himself also co-equal with the Father and the Son, and pertaining to the unity of the Trinity, yet not that this Trinity was born of the Virgin Mary and crucified under Pontius Pilate and buried and rose again the third day and ascended into heaven, but only Christ. Uh, And so here's a question for you all, which is maybe a little bit difficult. Uh, That last line there, from Augustine, identifies something that's distinctly what the Son does. A distinct, what we might call a work. Um, It's the Father alone, I mean, the Son alone who was crucified on the cross, right? Who was buried, who rose again the third day and ascended into heaven. It was the Son alone who did that. So if it was the Son alone who did that, how can we say there is only one action of the Trinity because there is only one identity of the Trinity. Because of Christ's humanity. So, yeah, and that, that we have to think about that as well, right? We can maybe say, well, it was his humanity, but still, it doesn't, that doesn't fully, I don't think, answer the question. And it, it's a difficult question, I think, to answer. Um, how can we say the Son distinctly does these things, but yet there is no distinct action um, or work? It's but one work of the Father, Son, and Spirit. What was that? The work is the Father's work. The work is the Father's work, yes. So the Son is not working separately at all from the Father or the Holy Spirit as he does this. right? And I've said this many times before. You could think of it as, the Father initiates, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies then that one work of God. Right? So the Father initiates it by sending his Son to the world. Right? The Son accomplishes it, and then the Spirit applies it to us as he convicts us, draws us to Christ. It's the one work of redemption that God does. Um, and so you could see as the as God exists outside of time from the Father, Son, and Spirit, the Son eternally begotten, the Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son, because he is that way, that's the way he works then in this world. And when he sends the Son and then sends the Holy Spirit. All right. Um, 
Gregory of Nazianzus. Let's read this really quick. Monotheism, with its single governing principle, is what we value, not monotheism defined as the sovereignty of a single person, but a single rule produced by equality of nature, harmony of will, identity of action. See, and these are where you're starting to see some of those things I had listed. Um, and the convergence towards their source of what springs from unity. There's one source, none of which is possible in the case of created nature. The result is that though there is numerical distinction, there is no division in the substance. There's numerical distinction, right? From the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, but in that there is no separation or division. All right. I know that's a lot initially, but we need to fill that foundation before we now we get into the rest of it. Any questions, though, on this? It was a quick, just, let me just sped through this really quickly, but is there any quali- like questions? You want me to clarify anything on that? Why did he say numerical? What was that? Why did he say numerical? Numerical, as in there are, there's three of them, so it's, None is greater than the other, uh, but there is true distinction, but yet there is no division. And that's a good question. So we do believe in one God who eternally exists in three distinct, that's numerical, right, um, persons. And so you'll see as we continue with this that a lot of people then would start to say, that makes no sense. Right, And so it's not reasonable, so therefore we should get rid of it. And that's a lot of the pushback that the doctrine of the Trinity has had throughout time. Um, but that's, yeah, a great question. Any other questions, though, on this? <clears throat> All right. The change, the... Enlightenment brought. So as now we're now coming into the modern era, there's been new advances made in the scientific method and just the learning how to know things. We know things by observing and testing and um, not assuming anything before we do experiments. And so then if that's true, how... Do we know God? We can't test God. We can't do experiments on God. God isn't something we could just take um, with an outside objective view and observe it rightly as a non-Christian. So how then are we supposed to think of God after then the Enlightenment? Well, again, if you have listened to me teach a decent amount of times so you have seen me do this before. So I need, I would like you all to um, draw uh, a pyramid in a way with three boxes on top of each other like that. If you've seen this, then you know where I'm going with it. And I need you to draw um, two of them right next to each other in that space. So two three boxes on top of each other, 
each box on top is getting a little bit smaller. I was going to have those boxes on there for you, but then I was struggling with it for whatever reason on the Word documents. I'm like, if people could just draw it. <laughs> so two of them right next to each other in that space at the bottom. And then um, you could maybe draw an arrow from one to the other. Um, and I want to show at least how people understood um, or thought of God and how we know God before the Enlightenment, and that will be the first triangle. And then after the Enlightenment, where it goes, I want to show you how people thought of God or how we come to know God in that second triangle of boxes. So there's three terms. Does anyone remember this from when I've done it before? I've probably done it this semester. I've done it last semester as well. There's three terms. One term goes in each one of those boxes. So you remember these terms. Does anyone remember doing this before? Okay. Well, if you hear the terms, you probably remember. The first one is, the first term you write at the bottom tier, the biggest tier in the first triangle is metaphysics. Does this sound familiar? Metaphysics. Metaphysics what is that? That's asking the question, what is really real? What is really real? What is the first cause? It's, it's identifying the abstract before you get to the practical. So what is really real? That's what that first box is asking. So before the Enlightenment, people, when they thought of God and just how to do theology, how do we come to know God, they were all starting with the same principle foundation that there is God or at least Christians were, right? That there is God. All right, well, if he's the first cause, what then would go in the second um, box in the middle section of that triangle? The word epistemology would go in there. Epistemology. If you don't know how to spell it, that's fine. Just do it, pissed. Oh, yes. Yeah, maybe I should have made sure to say, draw a big... And so epistemology asks, how do we know what is really real? Metaphysics is, what is really real? What is the first cause, right? We say that's God. Then, how do we know who this God is? Christians, we would say, God's revelation. God reveals himself to us through God's word, right? Through creation, natural revelation. So, metaphysics... Um, you can think of God, right? The first cause, epistemology. How do we know? Through God's revelation. Therefore, on the top box, we know how to act. So you write ethics on the top box. You know what is morally right. So that's pre-enlightenment way of thinking for Christians. Now, second triangle, right? Scientific method. We can't just assume things. We have to test. We have to observe. We have to do these things. So what, what do we start with? We don't start with the metaphysics, right? We have to start with your epistemology. Again, remember, what is epistemology asks? Epistemology goes on the bottom of that second one. Epistemology asks, how do we know what is really real? 
So you have to start first by doing whatever you can to learn what is really real. Um, study, right? You have to observe the universe. You have to experience. These are some ways that you might figure out what is real in this world. And then that will determine what is your metaphysics would be in the middle and then ethics on the top for that second one. So really they switched the metaphysics and the epistemology. And so you could see there's a huge foundational difference here. We're no longer starting with the understanding that God is this eternal God outside of time. We can't start with that because we can't observe that. We can't study that. So instead, we have to try to make God understandable to us and study him. So that's what happens then here in this next section when we do the historical overview. Okay. I know that's a lot. But the purpose of that section was just to help us maybe a little bit follow the reasoning some of these people had as they try to understand who the Trinity is and who Christ is. Because they're not assuming the metaphysical foundation. They are trying to reason objectively on their own absent God's special revelation. I know this is that that bit, bit is a little bit difficult, but let's start here. Historical review, starting in the modern, early in the modern era, rationalism, and the Unitarian age. What does rationalism mean? What is if you're a rationalist? What does that mean? Trying to make sense of it, right? rationalize anything we're trying to make sense of it. Yes, yes. We're trying to make sense of it. We're trying to reason with it. So being reasonable is definitely not not bad, right? But if you take it to an extreme and you say that you have to be rational with all things, that means everything needs to be perfectly explainable. And as we looked at the Trinity, the classical orthodox Trinitarian understanding of who God is, you can't take that out to be fully explainable. Why? Because God is an infinite God and we are finite beings. And so, therefore, people would say, it's not rational. Let's throw out the doctrine of the Trinity and let's be now Unitarians. What's a Unitarian? What does it sound like? Everybody's one. one. One God, right? Our God isn't triune, but there's one, one God. Um, and so that started to make, um, that started to infiltrate the church a bit. Uh, people started to deny the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is not new either to the modern era. People have been denying the doctrine of the Trinity throughout the entire history of the church. Um, because people don't necessarily want to start with the metaphysical understanding that God is God, the first cause of all things, 
and we know who he is through his own revelation, so we should listen to his own revelation of himself, which is scripture. But people would want to start with the epistemological understanding and say, well, what is really real and what is reasonable? Right? It's not reasonable for God to be triune because I can't understand it, so therefore he can't be, so we should get rid of that. Um, so, uh, just a couple notes here. I realized on your note sheet, I did not leave a lot of space. I meant to let, leave space because that was meant to be a section, the rationalism and Unitarian age. So you'll have to write in the margins. Um, but in 1805, Harvard College, this is just an example, in the year 1805, Harvard College appointed a Unitarian professor to, be, to lead their divinity department. Um, and so you could just see Unitarianism was starting to infiltrate. Um, that's true. That's true. So, um, but, yeah. And, and, and so this might lead to a bigger question, Rick. Uh, if we deny Christ, or more so God, the triune God, um, is not the Trinity, if we deny the Trinity, um, are we worshiping even the same God? Uh, so are they atheists in the sense that they are denying the God of the Bible? I mean, so you have to look at that. But I would agree it's, it's worse now, where they wouldn't necessarily even hold to a lot of uh, Christian principles. Um, and then also uh, a guy named William... Uh, Channing, he lived, he was born in 1780, died in 1842, um, became a prominent pastor in Boston and was a leading voice in Unitarianism. Um, I found this quote interesting by Thomas Jefferson. Um, He said, this may surprise some of you, I don't know. He says, I rejoice that in this blessed country of free uh, inquiry and belief, which has surrendered its creed and conscience to neither kings nor priests, that genuine doctrine of one only God is reviving. Of one only God, yeah, is reviving. And that, and I trust that there is not a young man now living in the U.S. who will not die a Unitarian. Um, He was uh, a Unitarian, and he hoped that all Christians now, since we're no longer bound, um, our creed and our conscience is no longer bound to king or priest, that we will all now die Unitarians. Um, so that was Thomas Jefferson. Uh, so yeah, you could see cha- change where it says do Unitarian, die Unitarian. <laughs> a little typo there. But uh, you could just see that that was a big push uh, early on in our, in our country. Uh, denying the doctrine of the Trinity. Not by all, obviously, but by, by some. Um, now, if we're taking away the metaphysical understanding um, that God is the one who has to reveal himself to us for us to know anything about him, this triune, eternal God, 
and we have to somehow, with our own methods, come to know God. How do we do that? Well, the only way we could do that is we could only study history, right? If we're trying to understand who Christ is. So it's now the quest for the historical Jesus. And so in this, uh, people claiming to be Christians, and maybe some were, were dividing what we would understand as the historical Christ from the Christ of the Bible, the Christ, the Messiah we have faith in. And so we can't, with our own knowledge, if we're starting with epistemology now, after the Enlightenment, we can't, with our own knowledge, come to understand, test, and do our own methods to prove that Christ is divine, that has to be revealed to us. So therefore, the only thing we can do is find this historical Christ. And so it's now separating the Christ of Christianity from the historical Christ. And so there's a false dichotomy being made here um, in, during this era as we're seeking to know who, who Christ is. Um, some of these names here will look familiar from at least last week. Um, Schleimacher, fun last name. We mentioned him last week, if you remember. Um, you can see again the dates here when he was alive. Um, and so due to the epistemological shift, right, now changing it to being the foundation of our understanding of how we come to know God, um, we can uh, no longer start with a set of theological and confessional formulations of God because we can't, with our own methods, test or prove those. Um, we ha- so he would focus on, Schleiermacher, uh, on... Um, well, let me just read this. It says, due to the epistemological shift, there is no longer a set of theological and confessional uh, formulations, but a feeling of absolute dependence on God. So then Schleimacher focused on, we can know about Christ on our feeling. Um, and so the way we come to know things is being a rationalist, reasoning it out, or, I mean, you could have experience and feeling, right? You could use those things absent God's divine revelation, right? Because we don't want to use God's divine revelation because we're in the Enlightenment era. We want to not rely on God to know about God, but we need to try to come to know God ourselves. And so we could use, what are our tools? Reason, feeling. And so Schleimacher would use feeling here. He is no longer the Redeemer, to Schleimacher, who is the perfect God-man, but that Jesus is best understood as the perfect embodiment and example of our dependence on God. So now, Christ, you can see now a slight shift happening because of this foundational shift in just the way we come to know God, that we can't start our understanding that God, Christ is our Redeemer, Right? But he is a good example of just how we've seen him in history. Um, 
And uh, we have a feeling of absolute dependence on God, and we can learn from Christ in that way. And so there's a shift happening here with Schleimacher. And then now, um, or at least with Schleimacher, the doctrine of the Trinity really became inconsequential. He didn't necessarily teach a Unitarian theology, but he didn't teach a Trinitarian theology either. It was just not important, really, for him. Um, and so then we come to this next guy. I was unsure how to pronounce his name. Rischel, I think. Um, you can see he lived a bit after Schleimacher. And he kind of fell in line with Schleimacher, but took it maybe to the next level. Uh, he saw the essence of Christian theology in the experience of faith and necessary, necessary moral action within Christian community. For him, Christians about um, the ontological Christ. When I say ontological Christ, I'm referring to like the metaphysical category. Um, are unnecessary. He would he would see it's it, it's completely unnecessary to try to get to the metaphysical understanding of just who is God in eternity. We have to use the scientific method, or we have to use our tools of learning about God on our own. Because the abstract ideas that are just handed to us through divine revelation, we can't prove. We can't come to know on our own. And they're ultimately then non-important, is what he would say. And so you can see here, there is something that really started from him called functional Christology. Uh, Christology, let's remind ourselves, what does Christology mean? Does anyone know? What's that? Your understanding of Christ. So yeah, the doctrine of Christ, just the teaching of Christ, our understanding of Christ. Yes. And so functional Christology, uh, he would say, again, there's no reason to focus on the abstract, who is God in eternity as the Trinity, right? As our Redeemer, as God being God himself, Christ being God himself. There's no purpose of thinking of those things. Uh, because we can't observe and see those things. So let's focus on the functional Christology. So here, it would focus on and then analyze the moral works of Christ as a human. We know Christ is a historical person. Um, So we could look at his works. We could see what he did as a human. And... Learn how to be a Christian from our moral example, Christ himself. So we're just focusing. So you could see here, um, the Chalcedonian, if you remember the Chalcedonian Council, we've talked about quite a bit as well, um, understanding of who Christ is, where we said Christ is the hypostatic union, fully God and fully man that he is fully both in one person. That's the Chalcedonian understanding of who Christ is. Here, post-Enlightenment era, the focus really starts to just become on the human. Because we can't understand divine revelation. right? We need, we need to, uh, with our own reasoning, with the epistemology on the bottom tier, what is, how do we know what is really real? 
we are trying to reason um, things, and you can only reason the humanity side of Christ. So therefore, the human part of Christ um, became more prominent, and the divinity of Christ started to fade away. And you could see how the the trajectory of this could be very um, tragic. Is Christ truly divine? Right? Did he really do those miracles? Uh, and those were some of the questions that were being raised, or raised from all of this. Um, a good quote I thought was helpful on just functional Christology from the book we've been using. Um, Historical Theology for the Church. I have that here on page 298 on your note sheet. It says, Functional Christology attempted to form a religious ethical model, right, focusing on just the morals of Christ, of Christ's person and ministry rather than one grounded in the pre-eternal ontological identity of the second person of the Trinity. Why? Again, because we can't know that God is the second person of the Trinity as truly divine, pre-eternal, unless it's first divinely revealed to us through his word. And that's, and you can't come up with that on your own. We try to limit God on so many things, but they're really trying to do that here. Yes, you're right. So you can see the sad trajectory that comes from, from this. And this is, really the foundation to what is called liberal theology, um, where we deny people who profess to be Christians may question the divinity of Christ, would question that this is truly God's inspired word, would question if Christ actually did the miracles he said he did in the New Testament's question if Christ actually rose again from the grave, right? Again, why? Because we have switched our foundational philosophical understanding from the foundation being the metaphysics to our epistemology. All right, next guy here, Uh, Harnack. You could see uh, 1851, 1930, For him, the core of Christian faith was the realities of the fatherhood of God. So, him trying to be a Christian, but also trying to redeem Christianity by what they thought as um, on right methods. Uh, So, one of the things that many of these people were trying to do is they were trying to save Christianity in a way because they saw the world becoming more progressive, being more reasonable, what they would understand is more reasonable, right? Using the scientific method and everything. And so they tried to show that you can do that as a Christian and we should do theology that way. And you could see now the consequences of that. Um, and so what they were trying to save, they were really just harming um, but for him, yeah, so the way he thought of God was um, he thought of the fatherhood of God, which is, which is right, but he could only think of God as father because it, it's relatable to humanity. 
Um, so the core of the Christian faith was the realities of the fatherhood of God and the goodness of the human soul. Um, he thought Christ was simply a moral teacher, again, um, such as these other individuals prior. Um, he denied the miracles of Christ. Harnack did. He thought we should get rid of the book, the Gospel of John, because, I mean, the Gospel of John is incredibly Trinitarian. Um, how could those things happen in his mind? Right? And so he, he thought we should get rid of that. He believed that Jesus was merely a human being who had a knowledge of God greater than other people. So therefore, we should still look to Christ to learn about God. But, I mean, he was just a human too. He was just this historical figure. Um, and so you could see here's a quote from him um, in a book he wrote, What is Christianity? So you could just see the trajectory that's happening here. Um, and how Christ becomes just a moral teacher who is weak and no longer God himself. All right, so what's the response to all of this? This next section shows a response to this. Uh, There's a term known as neo-orthodoxy where Christians were trying to respond to this liberal theology. Um, trying to respond to what was happening to the Christian faith of who they confessed Christ to be and who they thought the Trinity was. Um, so this is neo-Orthodoxy. And again, here, Karl Barth, he, we mentioned him last week as well. And we mentioned some issues he had in his theology. But he attempted to move closer to the classical Trinitarian understanding of God that we first observed at the beginning of this lesson. So he saw what was happening, and he was saying, actually, Christ is the Son of God. Um, he has, um, he is caused from the Father. He is truly divine and truly human. So, yeah, he attempted to move closer to a classical Trinitarianism by by reframing Jesus Christ as the self-revelation of the divine word who can be known only by faith and with the help of the Holy Spirit. But there were some issues. Um, Because Christianity and our doctrine has gotten to a point in the modern era right before Karl Barth responded, um, to be so wacky, right? Um, We needed to really recover, go back to what the early church fathers and many of the early Christians were saying about who God is all along and learn from them and how they read God's word, right? It ultimately comes from God's word, not just what older men said. But I believe that older men, uh, when I say older men, the early church fathers faithfully interpreted God's word. But they need, we needed to go back and kind of retrain ourselves. How do we think of God? Right? Because we've gotten into this big mess. Um, so 
he negatively, so this was a negative effect on Karl Barth, um, negatively uh, started what later, after his life, um, became known as the social Trinitarianism. Um, and so with his defining on who God is, he, he was trying to get back to the classical Trinitarian position, but yet he was a little bit off um, in, a little, in the way he articulated God. And if you remember, social Trinitarianism simply teaches uh, that, yes, there is one God, there are three distinct persons, but in a way, these persons are like in a social community with each other. They relate to each other. They cooperate with each other. Um, kind of breaking apart the unity of God. Um, and I do want to be maybe a little bit more fair on Karl Barth here. He would, he would say, yes, God is one. And it was more of his... Um, his students and those who kind of came after him who took his teaching and kind of went a little bit further with it that made social Trinitarianism. So, um, so that, that was the negative uh, lasting impact he had, but positively he was renewing interest in Trinitarian theology because really up until this point before Karl Barth, I would say probably from him, it was, there was a new renewed interest and understanding what does the Trinity mean. Uh, we've completely lost it or became just a background doctrine that no one ever talked about anymore uh, when liberal theology became more and more popular through um, trying to understand God just epistemologically, not starting with the metaphysics. And so then now here, John Webster, um, I think... He is very helpful. You can see he just died in 2016. Uh, he called for a renewed attention to the ontological realities of the Trinity. And what that means, he called for a new attention to look at, we need to understand who God is through God's divine word based on who he says he is first in eternity before we could understand and talk about the things and what he does then in time. Um, So here's a quote by John Webster, and I think this is helpful. The doctrine of the Trinity is not one doctrine among others, right? It's not just in the list of doctrines, and it's certainly not one that's meant to be pushed way back in the back list. It is foundational and pervasive to explain Expound any Christian doctrine is to expound with varying degrees the directness of the doctrine of the Trinity. To expound on the doctrine of the Trinity in its full scope is to expound on the entirety of Christian dogmatics or Christian teaching, ultimately. So he, I think, is very helpful to show us, actually, this needs to be front and centered. And so he rightly, I think, brought it back around for us, um, him and many others, of course, but but right back around for us that this is who our God is. This is what makes us distinctly Christians. This is a Trinitarian God who reveals himself to us so that we can then come to know him. It has to start with him so that we can come to know him. 
Um, it has to start with the metaphysical understanding of God, and then he reveals himself. Again, that would go in your epistemology category. So then now we know how to act and be as Christians. Um, and so that's kind of like a full, quick sweep in the modern era where you could see uh, where we started to go off a little off track and then we have some men trying to recover this retrieval work of we need to go back to Scripture. We need to go back to these earlier faithful men who have already thought through these things and recover our doctrine of who God is. So, Thomas Jefferson making up his own Bible and things like that, and just, not just a little. Yeah. I, I'm kind of curious. Uh, yeah, Carol and I recently watched some Amish chick flick thing on huh? Pure Flicks. But, <laughs> but it kind of makes me wonder because I, they seem to be, you know, still 19th century type folks. Are they Unitarian type people then or, or what? Because it seems like you're mentioning a lot of people especially the Germans, et cetera, yeah. had gone way over to liberalism. Yeah. And it's only been uh, in the more hundred or so years that we've finally been uh, getting back to Trinitarians. Sure. So You may not know, but I'm just curious. I mean, that's a good question. I think it's a very nuanced answer <laughs> based on each person and how they would articulate it. So um, that's why it could be a difficult answer to give, question to answer. I'll live with that. But... I mean, yeah, Unitarianism is huge throughout the history of the church. And especially if we just think of Christ as being a mere man, um, that would highlight the fact if you truly believe there is a God, then there must just be a single God because Christ is not also God in their understanding. So, I, I know the Amish are extreme Calvinists. That's why, you know, because they, they, they live on their own community and believe that... There is no evangelism. It's, you know, God will draw who he will. And, you know, that's, the, you know, that they're the extreme of the Calvinist. Mm. You know, where it's the non, you know. Sure. I mean, I can't comment. Community. We'll go to ourselves and we'll do it our way. And God will draw who, who he's going to do. And it'll basically be our community. Mm. I yeah. know that's yeah. strict about Sure. I, I don't know, honestly, much about the Amish specifically. Um, so, but, I mean, that is a, a, a sad way to interpret Calvinism. If one were to just say, we should not evangelize because God will do his own work, um, right? Because we know God works through us. And he calls us to do his work, and we are his hands and feet in this world. And and so there are many other, I would say, great Calvinists who are strongly evangelical as well. So, yeah. Yes? Can you explain the social Trinitarianism again? Yeah, so social Trinitarianism emphasizes more the distinct persons than the unity of God. Um, and they are distinct persons with distinct wills that choose to cooperate with each other to make up one God versus it just being one God with one identity, one will, and one action who subsists or exists in three persons. So, 
So the classical position emphasizes more of the unity. Maybe if you want to put it that way. And then the social Trinitarianism emphasizes more of the distinct persons. But if you just say it that way, I mean, they both sound fine then because they're both true. But social Trinitarianism emphasizes the distinct persons to the detriment of really dividing up God, to the the detriment of the unity of who God is. So, yes. We've talked a lot about these, you know, theologians and, and philosophers, and it has me wondering how much of this is really filtering down to the local churches, or mm. did this particular issue cause, you know, any schisms and different denominations that you're aware of? Or that's a good question. That's a really good question. Um, a lot of it did not filter, I don't think, down to the local churches, um, but some definitely did. I mean, I think early on in the history of our country, as um, we're looking at briefly, um, the doctrine of the Trinity was being denied amongst some of the churches and some of the pastors were teaching a Unitarian God. Um, With the liberal theology and the way that that was formulated and pushed throughout time, I mean, those things take time. And I think we have seen the results of that in our time and earlier on where um, Christ is just, um, Christ, the, the Christian uh, faith is just a social issue and it's not a redemptive issue. Uh, there's no longer sin needed or talked about because that's not a, a big deal. If we don't have a redeem, need a redeemer, it's um, how do we um, live well? How do how do we maybe? We, we, last week we looked at um, um, what's sometimes called black theology, right? Uh, um, feminist theology, and so you could see how that liberal theology would ultimately culminate in some of those things. Um, so it's more of, I think, the ideology and how people think more so than just how the churches run. I don't know. Any comments on that from anyone? Is all this based just on the fact that they don't trust the Bible? Yes. Yeah, they don't trust the Bible. They don't trust that the Bible is um, God's divine revelation because we are. they are trying to I mean, maybe it's harsh for me to say that, yes, they don't trust the Bible. Um, They're simply trying to start at a different starting line. The starting line for us is God's word. God reveals himself to us, so that's how we can know anything about God. For them, the starting line is, um, what tools do I have to get to know God myself? Um, the starting point for them is them. Sure. I. Sure. Yeah, you're right. It's from us up versus down. down up, down. From us. So it's, yeah, changing the direction. Just trying to take what they want from the Bible, uh, the p- portions that they feel like they will support, that supports what they want to do. Sure. Yeah, that could be a motive. It's certainly far easier to do, to do that. You can do it from that perspective. And so that's... Um, 
directly led into all manner of liberalisms that we've seen, like whatever flavor of the month is around. Um, it is very hard to find someone who begins with the metaphysic of God's eternality, um, reasoning towards uh, things like transgenderism, theology. Um, right. Yeah. Um, so with that, you'll see a bit more. The more you get into this, the more, I think, uh, bewildering it can be uh, with some of the, the thoughts here. Um, I think you definitely feel more the struggle of man trying to reason after God without him as a foundation. Yeah. Um, You're right. You definitely get the sense of that. Yeah. So, bottom line, we're fully and completely dependent on God to know anything there is to know about God through God's divine revelation, which is a testament of who Christ is, which is this word, and we can only know it with the help of the Holy Spirit. So let me close out in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, we love you, and we uh, just thank you for this time. Lord, I pray that we will think um, about you well, Lord, as you have revealed yourself to us through your word. Lord, I pray that we'll be fully dependent on you, Lord, to know things about you, Lord. Um, We love you and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.